have another life that God doesn't like. There's certainly sinful things we can engage in and displeasing to the Lord. But there are a few things that seem to virtually get the hair up on the back of God's neck more than worshiping another God. There's so many scriptures, so many references to not having anything to do with idolatry, and worshiping idols. And it seems a little weird to us because we probably really have never considered worshiping a little statue in our room somewhere. But the truth is, an idol is anything that is between you and God. It doesn't have to be a statue. It can be a television. It can be a fishing boat. It can be a job. It can be a person. Anything that stands between you and God, God's not pleased with Because He wants all of your attention. He wants all of your affection. He wants everything you are. And He doesn't share. He is God alone. And He wants to be worshipped by His people. We worship God when we give all of ourselves to Him. Not just when we lift up our hands, not just when we sing the songs of Zion, but when we give God all of us every day. We worship Him by making sure there's nothing between us, nothing that would stand in our way, walking into God's presence and telling Him how we feel. Amen. I love the Lord. I love the Lord. It's been so good to me. It's been so good to me. Amen. If you have your Bibles tonight, if you'd like to go with me to the book of John, chapter 1, Brother Tim, if I can impose on you a little bit. Uh, we have uh, new books from the Element series we're jumping into, and there is the foyer. And I was hoping folks would know some, but I don't think most of us did. So if you don't mind passing them out for those that would like one one. Uh, you don't have to have one, of course, but it does help you follow along and take notes. It helps you to, to look over the upcoming days after uh, we get together to, to rehash or to learn some of those things from the Word of God. Uh, we've been through two segments of elements. We've been through the first and the second, and this is the third. And this is the one where we get into to doctrines of the church. We get into some... A little, little bit deeper waters than what we were before. It doesn't mean that it's harder. It's just something that you know you might not get the first document of the church. It, may, it takes a little while. You need to have a relationship with God. Not that you couldn't understand it right out of the gate, but it, it's we'll get into just a little bit deeper water. Just a little bit more more meat, I guess, as the Bible calls it sometimes. As we roll into this third segment over the next few weeks. Tonight we're going to specifically talk about a topic that I, there's, there's nothing I can be more passionate about than the Word of God. And you might think, you know, well, when you're a preacher, you're supposed to be that way. Hold on. You're a child of God. You've got to have a love for His Word. We'll talk a little bit tonight about why, about what it is, what it means, but I just want to go ahead and give you a fair warning that there, there's nothing that I'm more passionate about than the Word of God. 
John chapter 1, verse 1. Here's why it's so important. I got one, thank you. In the beginning, beginning is that first book of your Bible. Genesis, before there were any people like you and I down here to discuss and debate anything. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And all things were made by Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. This world might rise up in the face of God, but He made us. Everything came from the Word of God. Verse 4 says, In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. I want to read one verse to you out of the book of Psalms, chapter 119. This is supposed to be at the end of the lesson, but this will be the beginning of ours tonight because it just flows too well to not put it there. Psalms 119 and verse 105 says, Thy word. Folks, I can't even read this without feeling the Holy Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. We'll teach for a little while tonight on the word of God. Can we lift up our hands and voices? Let's praise the Christ for the word. Oh, Jesus. Oh, there's not much about it. Oh, we're so thankful tonight to be able to come and hear the word spoken by the Spirit of God. Oh, to be able to read those things that are eternal and forever settled in heaven. God, we are thankful for your holy word tonight. And we pray, Lord, let it be loud inside of us. Let it be buried in the dirt of our hearts. Oh, Lord, let it be There's some days when it's glorious. There's some days when it's wonderful. And there's some 
it's not always an easy road. It's not always a simple thing. But the truth of the matter is, nothing else saves men. Oh, a doctor might keep you alive for a while, and medicine might change the course of your health status, and riches and wealth and, and, and fame and fortune might, might change your outlook on a particular day or a particular situation, but nothing saves a man but the Word of God. Nothing saves a man but the Word of God. There's times, there's times it can be weary. There's people in, in your family, friends of yours, acquaintances of yours, you taught them the Word of God. You give them a Bible study. They sat with you and, and listened to it preached. They did not move. So why keep on trying? Why bother? Because we know that it is only the Word of God that will save. It is the only Word of God that will save. The Bible tells us that God chose the foolishness of preaching. But what is it that we preach for men to be saved? It is the Word of God. Nothing philosophical, nothing entertaining, nothing interesting that I can ever come up with to tell you is going to do anything else other than bring a chuckle to your voice or maybe bring a new thought to your mind. But if I can give you the Word of God, I can change your eternal destination. Amen. There is nothing like the Word of God. Well, let's get into the lesson just a little bit tonight. Let's look into the book of John, chapter 6. Now, I want to talk a little bit about where we're landing here. So, in, in John, chapter 6, Jesus' his popularity is rising. He's, he's attracting crowds now. You know, how many preachers don't want to attract the crowd? I mean, you really don't want to go preach to nobody. They need more practice than nobody to talk to, but you really would rather somebody come to hear what you've got to say. At some point, God calls you to preach to the souls of men. And so here the Lord is, and, and where he's going, crowds are showing up, and multitudes are showing up, and, and they're hanging on every word. They're waiting for the miracles and the signs and the wonders, and, and, and they're listening to the things that he has to say, even if he preaches now. Nobody said anything. Even if he preaches now. They, 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 they listen to every word that he said. I will tell you, he preaches a lot longer than that. John chapter 6, we, we find him in the middle of one of these great messages, in the middle of one of these, these opportunities that he has to preach the gospel. And in John chapter 6, beginning in verse 26, I'm going to read a bunch of these to you if you, if you can stand it. Jesus answered them and said, There and there I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. I guess some things never change, do you? You know, you call it ten people show up. You have a church picnic. <laughs> Brother, I haven't seen you in 15 years, but you know, but there's rims on the grill, so it's time to go to church. He said, you, you didn't seek me because you saw the miracles, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. He says, labor not for the need which perisheth, but for the need which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath the God the Father sealed. Then said they unto him, What shall we do? that we might work the works of God. And Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that you believe on him who he hath sent. They therefore said unto him, What sign showest thou then, that we may see and believe thee, and what dost thou work? And then they added a little something in here. They said, Our fathers did eat manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. They're looking for a sign. They're looking for something 
miraculous, and they cite the fact that they have been told throughout their generations that there was a time when God himself miraculously fed them with manna in the wilderness. And so they're basically looking at him saying, now what do you got? What are you going to do? Well, what sign do you have to prove to us that, that you are who you say that you are? And Jesus said to them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven. Now, they believed that it was bread from heaven. It was angel food. It was miraculously provided to them. Now, I don't, I don't know if that's what angels eat or not. Maybe it is. I don't know if that's what angels eat or not. I have no idea. But I do know that it, it showed up on the ground down here at Terra Firma. And he said, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. We want that. We want the bread that gives life. We want the bread that comes down from heaven. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you that you've also seen me and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me should I lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, and every one which seeth the Son, and believeth on him they have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now I kind of put in this context. Many of you have been in church services before that, that they got going. You know, I know it's about that time of year that the shepherd normally comes, and y'all know what it's like when the shepherd gets going. You know, I know sometimes he's going to preach repentance, sometimes he's going to make you cry and get you in the altar, but there's every once in a while he's got a message from God, and you know what's going to happen. You know, he, he, things are just kind of getting worked up into a ladder, you know somebody's about to shout, somebody's about to run the aisle, somebody's about to, to jump for joy. That, that's kind of how I put it here. I, I'm not saying it was that way, it probably wasn't that way. But we're kind of getting to this heat of the moment in this message. He's laying it on thick, he's giving them the good stuff. I'm the bread that comes down from heaven. And if you if you have me, if you believe on me, I'm never going to cast you out, but I'm going to do the will of God in your life. What do you think the response was? We know what it ought to have been. It ought to have been the singing and the shouting and the aisle running and the altar praying. That's what should have happened. But verse 41 says the Jews did murmur to him. Because he said, I have a bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, Murmur not among yourselves. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up in the last day. It is written in the prophets. They shall all be taught of God. Every man therefore that hath heard and hath learned of the Father, cometh unto me. Not that any man hath seen the Father, save he which is of God, he hath seen the Father. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Now, if he had stopped there, it would have just seemed like he was just reiterating his point. But 
Jesus wasn't going to let them leave confused. He wasn't going to let them leave without getting the whole punchline. He said, your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness. And they're dead. The manna didn't save them. The manna didn't change them. The manna kept them alive for a period of time, but they're all dead. They're all in their graves, and all you've got are stories of great-great-great-grandpa and what happened in the wilderness after God delivered them from Egypt, and they were faithless, and God condemned them to die there. That's all you've got. All of your fathers are now dead. He said, this is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give him is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. We love to read. We love to hear it. It'll make us want to shout. They didn't shout. Because verse 66 says, From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. You know, it's like capping off the revival with a message of tithe and offering. Everybody's ready to go to heaven. Now it's time to take up money for missions. Oh, Lord, have mercy. I'm broke. It, it was going good. They, they were eating for loaves and fishes that came out of nowhere, came out of the hands of Jesus. They were seeing blinded eyes open. They were seeing the lame get up and walk again. They were seeing the doves speak again. But now he's talking about eating himself. Now he's talking about eating his body and drinking his blood. They couldn't handle that. That time forward, many of them went back. And the subsequent scriptures, you can go on and read them later at your house if you want to. He turns to his own disciples and said, are you going to? Are you going to leave too? Undoubtedly, most of the crowd went home. It's like having a church of 100 on Sunday morning and coming back on Sunday night and there's 10 of us there and five of them in the house with you. All because he said, you've got to eat my body and you've got to drink my blood. Why? Why did none of them seem to get this? Why did none of them, or very few of them, seem to absorb what it was that the Lord was giving them? And why were they so offended with what God had to say. Because Jesus was speaking of spiritual things and not natural things. They were never going to take a finger or a toe and put it into their body and consume it. They were never going to stand at the foot of the cross and, and catch that blood in a cup and take it home and drink it. That was never going to happen. He was talking about spiritual things. He was saying, I am the bread of life. If you believe on me, you've received me, and I become part of you. He was speaking of spiritual things and not natural things. Why in the world of all the why did you read all those scriptures to make that point? Have you ever read something in the Word of God before? And when you got done, you're thinking, I have no idea what that means. I have no idea. And I'm not just talking about the fact that it's old English. I mean, you, you read the scripture and you just you just don't get it. You just don't understand what it is that the Lord was saying. Now, sometimes that happens in your life. A lot of times it happens in your life because you need somebody to teach you. You 
somebody to give you the understanding of that scripture. That's why we have pastors and preachers and teachers and evangelists and apostles and prophets. That's why all of those exist. That's why you have Sunday school teachers. That's why you have parents. That's why you have godly friends, godly brothers and sisters to do those things for you. However, there's also times in your life that you don't understand it because you're reading it from a natural perspective only. You're reading it as if it were just a book. I did all that just to get down to this point. The Bible is not just a book. This world is filled with more books than any man can number. I know Congress tries, but they still have no idea how many books are in existence. More books are written probably by the thousands every single day all around this world. There are volumes upon volumes upon volumes of men's thoughts and feelings and opinions and historical facts and scientific discoveries, all sorts of things. Some of them are true and some of them are lies. But the Bible is not just a book. It is not just a, a box set of 66 books either. It is the living, breathing, supernatural Word of God. There's been a scandal in the news over the past handful of days. I won't miss any names, but the person was a leader of a, of a large organization of academics, as I took this from a website, of academics and evangelists who's whose jobs in their organization was there to answer questions about the Christian faith and to speak and to train others about <laughs> the Christian faith. They were, they were called apologists. They dealt with apologetics, which is not apologizing. It's, it, it's a term for someone who explains or defends the gospel. This whole organization, its purpose is to explain and defend the gospel. And the leader of that organization was eventually uncovered to be living a very unbiblical life. Very ungodly life. How can that be? Now, I understand there are times that, that, that we attempt to live a godly life and we fail, we sin, we make mistakes, we repent, and we get those things back right with God. But how can it be that men can know so much about the Word of God and yet never live as if the Word of God has changed it's because there are plenty of men that always have, throughout all generations of time, studied the Bible as an academic effort. Now, I'm not saying you will not give it the old college try. You need to do the best you can to learn from the Word of God. But it's not just an exercise in academia. You can have memorized every word on the pages of Scripture and still miss the boat. Because Jesus proved it in that one passage when he was giving spiritual things to them and that they completely missed it. Because the word of God is not just something you study so that you get smart. It's something that needs to become a part of you. It becomes a part of your heart. It becomes a part of your mind. And it is a matter of God's spirit coming to live inside Yes, that's all between those two leather covers. That's what the Bible is about. The first section of your book, we're going to talk a little bit about the origin. Where, where did it come from? Well, we know that it's the Word of God. We use that term all the time. But how did we get it? Where did it come from? So let's talk about the origin of the Old Testament. The book of John, chapter 5, we're going to jump right to Jesus. Now, we're not even in the Old Testament. We're in the New Testament. 
but he's going to say something that's very important for us. John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus says, Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Verse 46 of that same chapter, he says, For had ye believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you believe not his writings, how shall ye believe my words? So what, what's going on here? Jesus is pointing out the existence and the validity of the Old Testament. Of the scriptures that were written down. He said, search the scriptures. That means there had to be scriptures. It was the Old Testament. They didn't call it that. It, but it was the scriptures that the Lord was referring to. And he is saying, they testified of me. He said, how can you know me? How can you believe what I say if you don't believe what Moses said, the scriptures, because Moses wrote of me? You want to fill in the blanks in your book? Here's a couple sentences in this section. The Bible is the word of God, and it reveals God's plan. The Old Testament contains the story of God's creation of the world, and relationship with his people pointing to the coming Savior. So within those scriptures that we read, what does scripture testify of? Testify of Jesus. What did Moses write about? Jesus. Oh, now come on. Moses wrote things like, Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery. Moses wrote things like, you know, when you're walking up to the temple, don't wear anything that makes you sweat. It's in there, folks. All you folks that don't like all this COVID-19 quarantine stuff, quarantine's in the Bible, too. You get sick, all this stuff starts coming up all over your skin, get it out of the camp. So they get cleaned up. And Jesus said, Moses wrote about me. How in the world could that be about Jesus? How does the scripture testify of Jesus? Let's talk about where the Old Testament came from. Jewish and Christian believers, so Jews of today and Christians like you and I, share the 39 books of the Old Testament. Now, it's not 39 books to them, to the Jews. They organize it a little differently than what we do. But nonetheless, they're the same books. They're the same writings that, that we share. And Commonly in today's vernacular, this wasn't back in Jesus' time, but for whatever reason, the Jews like acronyms. Really, really like acronyms. So if you have a rabbi that has 14 syllables in his name, they're going to make two or three syllables out of it. I don't know why. I'll tell you some of them some other time if you want to hear it. But you can buy, you can, you can order it online, you can order yourself a copy of what's called the Tanakh. And the Tanakh is made up of three things. It's made up of the Torah, which is the law, or the first, the first few books of the Bible. There's the Nevi'im, which are the prophets. And there's the Ketuvim, which are the writings. And so that's how they organize it. You don't have to remember that. There's not going to be a test. That's just what they call it. So if you ever hear the term Tanakh, then that is the, the Hebrew Old Testament. It's the same Old Testament that you and I have. It's just written in Hebrew, and ours is translated into English. 
The, um, that, that term is pretty commonly used today, and it goes back for a very long time, uh, but it, it wasn't used back you know, in, in the Old Testament time, per se. Uh, the proper title back then was Mikra, which is basically means reading or that which is read. And they call it that because the biblical texts were read publicly. But they had a lot of oral traditions. They had a lot of, of other things that they passed down for generations to interpret the scriptures. Kind of like us preachers stand up and help you interpret the scriptures today. Your Sunday school teacher stands up and says, my grandma told me that this is what the Lord spoke to her. And this is what this scripture, how it related to her life. They had all that, those things too. But the word of God that we're referring to here is what was written down. What was in scrolls. What was written down on paper or originally was etched in stone by the finger of God. It is the writing. It's the thing that is written down. That is what we're talking about when we talk about the Word of God or we talk about the Bible. So what all is in there? What all is in the Old Testament? I know some of you know this. Most of you know this. But, you know, I want to remind you once in a while. The Old Testament contains a creation story. It contains the, the, the explanation as to how the world, the world got here and how everything that we see to know, how it existed. And interestingly, it was not written by anybody who saw it. Because in the beginning was God. It was him. There were no men. We came a couple chapters later. And so it was Moses that God showed, revealed, gave those things to, and he wrote them down so that we would understand how the world came to be as a creation story. Uh, the overwhelming majority of what you see in the Old Testament is how God deals with his people. How God deals with his people, with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, and the tribes of Israel. It's the history of the Hebrew or the Jewish people. It's the, the, the journey that they went on with God all the way from the Garden of Eden until the time immediately preceding the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It, it's their history. It's the laws that God wanted them to follow. It's the do's and the don'ts and the shalls and the shall nots. It's God's promises to them. If you do this, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to watch over you. I'm going to provide for you. All those things are in the Old Testament. Then there's the wise sayings of Solomon. I mean, thank goodness he was the wisest man that ever lived. That, you know, supernaturally endowed by God to be smart. I'm glad he wrote him down. Yeah. I'm glad God told him, Google him to write those things down. We have songs and poetry and worship. Some of the most beautiful things ever written by the hand of a man are found in the Old Testament of your Bible. Yeah. And then there were the prophets. Prophecy that has already come to pass and prophecy that has still yet to have come to pass. All contained in the Old Testament. So what was its purpose? Why, why is it there? And, and what was it? And, and those, those things don't exist in the same sense anymore. Yes, God's natural people, the Jews, still exist, but they don't have their temple. You know, there's all kinds of commandments in the Old Testament that they physically cannot even obey anymore because they only relate to the temple and they don't have one. There's prophecy that's in those scriptures that has already come to pass. It's history. They, they were hauled off into Babylon and a number of years later they got delivered from Babylon and they moved back home. Okay, what do we need that for? I mean, I, I will tell you, one of the greatest feelings that I ever had on, on a recurring basis in college was when I got to the very end of the quarter of the semester. And I knew that I would never again, as long as I live, ever study that subject. And 
I was done with the final. It was all turned in, and I had this notebook full of notes that I had taken all semester. And when I got out of my shop with the professor, I could find the nearest garbage can <laughs> and deposit it. Because I never had to study sociology again. I never had to study environmental geography. Yes, that's a thing. I never had to study that again. I didn't, want, I didn't want to look back at it. I didn't want to reminisce over environmental geography one day. I was done. So what is the significance of those things? We're living in the day of the New Testament. Why do we need the Old Testament? The Lord Jesus Christ said, they testify of me. They speak of me. We read all those prophecies in the Old Testament. What is the purpose of prophecy? Is it just to learn future events? Is it just to be able to stand in front of somebody and say, I told you so, whenever it actually comes to pass? Is it just so that you can avoid trouble because you know the world's coming to an end and you want to make sure you get out of this country before the evil king gets up there? What did Jesus say they were for? They were to testify of him. If you get all the way to the end of the scripture, all the way to the end of the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 1, says the revelation, but we don't like to get farther than that sometimes. We just think revelation, ooh. It's all the stuff that Hollywood movies are made out of. It's white and black horses and thunders and trumpets and bowls and all these things that we try to figure out what's going to happen. But you know what the main purpose of that book is? The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. It is no wonder God chose John to be the one to see all these things because it was John that came under the unction of the Holy Ghost. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it was that same John that wrote in the final closing book of the Bible. He said, it's all about Jesus. Amen. Why do we get so torn up, excited, when somebody hauls off and speaks the name of Jesus, because everything that's ever been, everything that is, and everything that's ever going to be, has everything to do with Jesus. Yes, amen. All sorts of writers. First five books written down by Moses. Other writers like Joshua and Samuel, scribes and kings and prophets. This is why they did it. This is how they did it. It wasn't just, you know, it wasn't just some prophet that said, think about it right now what I think God said. You know, it wasn't just some king that said, well, this is pretty interesting stuff going on. Take some notes. I mean, the Gentile kings did that. The Gentile kings have records in their historical accounts. That's just not just all the word of God is. I know it is historically accurate, but its per primary purpose is not history. Second Samuel chapter 23 to verse 1. The great King David. The Bible says, now these be the last words of David. The last words of the man who had the promise of the Messiah to come from his lineage. David the son of Jesse said, 
and the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel said, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word Oh, I know he gets the credit for being the sweet psalmist of Israel, and I'm not taking what I owe that credit away from him, but I've also come to let you in on this. He wasn't just a shepherd boy that had a way of the words. He wasn't just somebody that studied enough and sang the tunes to become a good songwriter. David said God's words brought my lips. The Spirit began to move on me. And the things that I wrote down in those songs, the things that Samuel wrote down in the books of history, the things that Moses wrote down in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and so on, they were the words of God. Amen. It's no wonder Jesus said, read those words because they testify of me. Yes, amen. Don't ever think you've wasted your time because you spent some time with the Old Testament and Jesus ain't there. You can come to know Jesus without being in the Old Testament, but you'll never fully know who he is. Until you start seeing the very fingerprints of God. All the way from in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Gotta be finished sometime tonight. Number two. The origin of the New Testament. Second Peter chapter one. Now we're in the new. Jesus has come, he has lived, he has died, he has been buried, he has resurrected himself, he has ascended into the heavens. And now Peter, yes, that Peter, the one that's one of the twelve apostles, on the day of Pentecost stood up and preached the first message. Second Peter chapter one, verse nineteen. Peter writes and says, We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto you do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place. That sounds familiar. Until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not at all times by the will of man. But the holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. No prophecy of Scripture is a private interpretation. Men spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Peter said that's what Scripture has been. So where did the New Testament come from? It begins with what is called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, the first three, just in case you want to know, there's going to be some theological trivia. The first three are called the Synoptic Gospels. And that simply is they're called that because those first three follow the same general order and structure. They're covering mostly the same events, and they're roughly in the same order in which they tell it. And John's different. Let's see why he was the Lord's favorite. John's different. He organizes differently for... And he had a, a different purpose for doing it that way. Matthew and John were of the original 12 disciples. They were eyewitnesses. They were there when 
Lazarus was, was lifted up. They, they were there when the blinded eyes were opened. They were there for the miracles and the loaves and fishes. They were of the original twelve. Mark and Luke were not. Mark had he heard the accounts from the apostle Peter. Apostle, the apostle Peter told him the things, and then Mark wrote down the gospel account that Peter gave to him. Luke wasn't one of the original twelve either, and it is evident that he basically did research. He he, he read things, he consulted with the disciples, with, with different ones, and he used that research under the gunction of the Holy Ghost to write down the Gospel. And so we have all four of those that are the Gospels in the New Testament. And they primarily are about Jesus. They're about his life and, and what he did, and his death, burial, and his resurrection. And they roll all over into the book of Acts, which is where you and I live with Jesus comes. They roll into a book about, you know, once Jesus sent into the heavens and put this whole church thing in our hands, what did they start doing? It's the early days of the church. And from that point forward, until you get to the book of Revelation, they're what are called epistles, or they're letters that were written, mostly to churches, and a few of them were written to individuals or small groups of people. And they were written primarily by Paul. He wrote most of them, but Peter wrote some, and James, and Jude, and John, and so forth. And so... That is the structure of the New Testament. Here's what's so powerful about everything that you read in the New Testament. It can't be disconnected from the old. Jesus said, the scriptures, and when Jesus said, the scriptures testified me, none of these New Testament scriptures were written. They were still unfolding before their eyes. So the scriptures he was referring to was all the Old Testament. And he said, they testified in me. Well, if Jesus is the, is the central figure in the New Testament, they can't be separated. And in fact, Peter, on the day of Pentecost, when the crowd came up and they began to say, what in the world is wrong with those crazy people? They must be drunk. What is the first thing that Peter did? He said, oh no. He said, they're not drunk. This is what the prophet Joel spoke of. This is what was written in the scriptures that the Lord was going to do. In the Old Testament, Jesus was conceived. But in the New Testament, Jesus was revealed. They're all the one same God. They're all the one same man. They're all the one and same Jesus. And you see all throughout the New Testament that the writers, they are constantly referring back the Old Testament. They're quoting those scriptures. And then, and, and that's just the twelve apostles that were with him all the time. Now we've got Paul as well. Paul wrote, wrote down most of the New Testament, the majority of it that you read. Who, who is this guy? We find Acts chapter 22, verse 1. He starts to talk a little bit about who he is. He says, Men, brethren, and fathers, hear you my defense, which I make now unto you. He's He's converted now. He's a Christian like you and I. And, and he's preaching. He says, And when they heard that he spake in the Hebrew tongue to them, they kept the more silence, and he saith. They weren't listening to him if he wasn't a Hebrew. They knew their scriptures. They knew where their God was. They weren't listening to somebody who knew nothing of the scriptures that they lived by. He said, I am verily a man which am a Jew. Born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel. He was a famous rabbinical teacher and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers and was zealous toward God as ye are all this day. 
the same word you cut yours on. I grew up my whole life reading of the scriptures of the Messiah that you did. I've been looking and have been zealous toward God just like you have been your whole life. But the difference was Paul now knew who he was. Paul had seen him. Paul had touched him. Paul had heard his voice. Paul knew that the Messiah was not somebody they were still looking for, but it was somebody that had came because Jesus said, I am He. What's so interesting to me about the New Testament is most of the disciples are what the Bible calls unlearned men. And Peter was chief. Nobody's mouth got up in trouble faster than Peter's. And yet Peter was the ordained apostle to the Jewish people. And Paul was about as educated in his Jewishness as he could possibly be for a man living in that day. And yet, God sent him to us. God sent him to a bunch of Gentiles that never heard of the Tanakh. They never heard about Jehovah. Why did God do such a thing? Because he chose the foolish things of the world to confound the lives. He created things with the things. God came to say, we've got to study, and we've got to learn it, and we've got to memorize it. But you've got to come to know Jesus. You've got to be filled with his spirit. You've got to have the Holy Ghost. Amen.
They give everything that they have to understanding it, memorizing it, and interpreting it. And then they have volumes upon volumes of things written by their fathers and their sages and wise men about what the scriptures, what the Old Testament means. And there are times that, that they have insight that you and I would never have because they've been steeped in being Hebrew. And we're Gentiles. But at the same time, there's times that I read those things and all I can think about the whole time is, yeah, I wish they had a holy <laughs> Because they're right, this stuff, and because, because we know who Jesus is, I can read this stuff, and I'm about to lose my mind. It's so mind-blowing about what God said in the Old Testament about what was going to happen, and yet they don't see it. Jesus came to his own people, and they knew him not. Why? Because there was a veil over their face. They studied it, and poured over it, and loved it, and gave their life to it, and they still could not see it. But why? Why could they not see it? Because they rejected Jesus. Because the veil is done away in Christ. In verse 15, but even under this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, <laughs> nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. I come to tell somebody tonight, if you look at that Bible, and the things that are on those pages don't make any sense to you, I invite you to turn the trip down to the altar. Amen. And I will fill you with the Holy Ghost, because when you know Jesus, those things in Scripture, I'll reach out and snatch your attention off of its pages and say, this is me. These two testaments are in perfect harmony. History, poetry, prophecy, all of them speak of Jesus. The Gospels all speak of Jesus. The book of Acts happened by the power of Jesus. The book of Revelation reveals to all humanity who Jesus is. That's why everything lines up. That's why that's why some man in the first century AD could be in perfect harmony with somebody that wrote something that they didn't see with their own eyes 4,000 years before that. Because they all speak of the one and same thing. Jesus. Number three, you and I can trust in the word of God. You can't trust in men. You can't trust the chariots and horses. You can't trust the governments of bank accounts. You can't trust the jobs. You can't trust in other people's promises. You cannot even trust yourself, your own mind, your own heart, your own thoughts. But you can take every word in this book to the bank. You can take every word in this book. Not one word will fail. Not one will ever fall short. Every word of prophecy, if it has yet to be fulfilled, you can bet your bottom dollar it's going to happen. Every promise that's in the book, if you repent of your sins, if you are baptized in Jesus' name, you shall be filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost, with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. If you don't have wisdom, but you want it, the Bible says you can ask God for it, and He'll give it to you. Every word can be trusted.
53 and 16. I know I got to be done. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. This is New Testament, which means it's all the old and it's all the new. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished to all good works. The Bible is not just a book. It's not just a great story. But all scripture comes from God. It is the basis for our spiritual growth and maturity. If you want to know more about Jesus, read the Bible. If you want to be more like Jesus, get your life in line with the Bible. If you want to be closer to Jesus, get closer to your Bible. Spend some time with His Word, and you'll know the Creator of the universe like He is your best friend. We can trust that the Bible is the Word of God. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 18. John writes, For I testify to every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the word of this book of prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. He which testified these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. And then the scripture is concluded with, Even so, come Lord Jesus. Now I know these words here, they're at the end of the book of Revelation, and the book of Revelation is a book of prophecy. And it says, If any man shall add to this, then he'll get all the plagues. If any man takes away from this book, God's going to take away his part out of the book of life. But you also need to remember that it was the last one written. The Apostle John wrote down the book of Revelation. He was the last man standing in the original 12. The rest of them had been dead for a long time. He was the last living witness of Jesus Christ in the flesh. It was the final book was the back cover of the divinely inspired God being word of life. We have everything we need to make it to heaven. We have everything we need to be a God man or a God woman. We have everything we need to find hope and salvation. We have everything we need to find the power of the Holy Ghost to be delivered from our sins. It's all in His Word. It's all in His Word. Psalm 119 and 11, David said, Thy Word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Blessed art thou, O Lord, teach me thy statutes. With my lips I declare all the judgments of my mouth. I rejoice in the way of thy testimonies as much as in all bitches. I will meditate in thy precepts and have respect in thy ways. I will delight myself in thy statutes. I will not 
thought to get thy word. Friends fell David. Family fell David. Allies fell David. David fell David. But God never did. Amen. His word never fell short. He said, I'll hold on to it till my blind day. Even when I draw my last breath, I'll die. Hold on to the promises of God. Amen. I'm going to tell somebody here tonight, if you're not saved, the promise of salvation is still true. Come to pin your sins. Be baptized in Jesus' name and to fill you with the Holy Ghost. If you're backslidden, if you're calling God, His promise is still true. If you come back, if you repent, He'll forgive every sin and He'll restore your soul. The Word of God can be trusted. Amen. I'm going to pray around the altar. This space is for you. You want to lift up your hands and rejoice for the power of the Word of God. So be it. But somebody needs to reach out.